Hi, everybody, and welcome to session six of the second season of Dear Mr. Potter. I'm Alistair Stevens. Tonight, we are going to discuss chapters 13 and 14 of the Chamber of Secrets. We're going to move with, with purpose and with fortitude into the third act of this story. And I realized only this afternoon, as I was compiling my notes, that we only have two more sessions on the book after this. For those of you who've been keeping track of the schedule, I won't be around next week. Lonnie and I are going to be out of town, so it's going to be two weeks before we return for session seven. Then session eight is going to wrap up the book, and then the ninth session will look at the movie. This is a strange book. The structure here is strange. Less strange, perhaps, than the first book, but still oddly paced because we push a lot of the action into the back third, into the third act. We push a lot of the action and a fair amount of the incidental detail into the chapters that we're going to study tonight. We're going to skate over these chapters perhaps a little more swiftly than we normally do, because a lot of the incidental detail here is going to be referred to later. We're going to start a lot of narrative threads here. We're going to conclude them next week. And then the following week, I'm glad that you can all hear me. I'm glad that you can all see me. I'm glad that everything seems to be working perfectly. Hello to Emma and to Maya. Hello to Chrissy and to Chelsea. Hello to Caitlin, who is joining us for the first time. And hello to Richard, who is joining us for the first time. Guys, it is great to have you here. Oh, we're still getting some sync issues here. If you guys hit refresh, it should sort it out. Unfortunately, we are having a little bit of... Uh, a little bit of bandwidth trouble here in central New York, thanks to the fine folks at Time Warner. So I'm doing the best that I can to to manage it and to moderate that. So hopefully it won't be too terrible. The podcast version will, I hope, be tolerable. And don't worry too much, because we're going to spend a lot of time looking at slides tonight. So you won't have to worry too much about the lip sync issues. Before we get into it, though, I do want to give you guys a brief introduction to something that you may have missed. Because... <laughs> Let me just hastily rearrange some screens here so that I can show you the homepage of wonkcon.com. Some of you may know, some of you may not know that we are planning a, a con, a gathering, a get-together for StoryWonk listeners, for friends, for fans, up here in central New York, round about this time next year, probably... Yeah, late September, early October next year. We're rolling out the announcement of this fairly slowly. We talked a little about it on Twitter. We're going to talk a little about it on our Patreon-exclusive show that goes up tomorrow. But if you, the dedicated Harry Potter fan, would like to attend a con with like-minded wonks, if you would like to help us make this happen right now, we're just gathering information. Right now, we're just looking for, for some insight on how many people would like to attend, what kind of material they would like. So if you go and hit wonkcon.com, you will see that bright yellow button there at the bottom of the page. And we would really appreciate your feedback and insight. This is just the first stage of the process, but we're really excited about WonkCon and about all that it can be. We're not planning on running this as as a money-making exercise. This isn't about, you know, spreading the Story Wonk brand. We're talking about a, a quiet, intimate, connected con where we just get to have the kinds of discussions that we have at StoryWonk.com, the kinds of discussions that I've had with many of you via email or via Twitter or over on the StoryWonk forum. It's just so great to engage in this kind of positive and informed discourse about popular culture, and about the stories we love. If you would like to attend WonkCon, if you're interested in getting recordings, perhaps, of WonkCon, if you live too far afield, we have some people with us from all over the world tonight. If you live too far afield to make it to the Finger Lakes region here in central New York in the fall of next year, don't worry. Our plan is that we'll be able to record 
all of the live panels, all of the live discussions, and make available after the fact audio versions. We're, we're looking into all of that right now. This is still a, a project just beginning. So uh, hopefully you guys will be able to head over to wonkcon.com and give us a little more information. Plus you get to see our lovely WonkCon badge. So let me cancel that screen there and get into it. All right, so everything here is working. We're still getting some audio sync issues. I'm terribly, terribly sorry about that. Um, hopefully it'll sort itself out. As I said, we're gonna be looking at a lot of slides, so it shouldn't be too bad in terms of lip sync at least. If you have questions tonight, you can ask them here in the YouTube chat. I see you all gathered here or over on Twitter using the hashtag swdump, S-W-D-M-P. Great. All right, let's get into it because as I said, these chapters are a little fragmented. If you look at the structure of these chapters, you'll note that we get shorter scenes. There are more scenes contained in the two chapters we're going to look at tonight than there have been in the last, I don't know, half dozen chapters. We bounce around a lot and the passage of time is notable. We ended last week's session in the midst of the Christmas holidays, right there in the midst of the holiday season. And by the time we really pick up the plot, we're in the middle of February. So we're approaching that inflection point. We're approaching that turning point in the structure of a Harry Potter novel specifically, where we start accelerating toward our climax, narratively speaking, but we still have a fair amount of time to burn. We still have to occupy a few months before the end of the school year so that the end of the school year and the climax of our, our temporary plot can coincide meaningfully. So we open with Hermione's recovery from the Polyjuice Potion, which I know I gave short shrift to last week, and a couple of you got in touch to say that you, uh, to say that you really enjoyed Hermione being half transformed into, into a cat girl. And it's not that I don't enjoy it, and it's not that I don't think it's funny. It's a narratively frustrating beat for me because of Hermione's role in the narrative. We're going to discuss that a little later. I got a really great email about Hermione's role in in the core plot of Chamber of Secrets. So for me, it's not that it's not funny, it's not that it's not engaging, it's not that it's not diverting, it's simply that I kind of wish that we didn't have to sideline Hermione so effectively, so absolutely. And of course, we're going to circle back around to that in tonight's reading. I do hope too, thinking of it, that her parents are informed of what's going on at Hogwarts. I hope that... that uh, Mr. and Mrs. Granger are kept up to speed because she is kept in the infirmary as part cat for the better part of two months from basically Christmas Day until Valentine's Day, effectively, and then is shortly thereafter petrified where she remains until the end of the school year. So I hope that Mr. and Mrs. Granger have been have been kept up on, on her welfare and health. Yes. <laughs> All right. Harry and Ron, then, are doing homework for Potions class when they hear a disturbance in the hall above them. Filch has been chased away from his guard post outside Myrtle's bathroom, where, you may recall, he has been stationed ever since Mrs. Norris was petrified. This definitely raises some questions about Harry and Ron and Hermione's use of Myrtle's bathroom as the best place to concoct the Polyjuice Potion. I've given that a lot of thought, and I'm not sure that I'm any closer to understanding the why or the wherefore of that decision, but here we are. Um, Filch is chased away by this growing pool of water, reminiscent, of course, of the night that Mrs. Norris was, was petrified. They investigate the bathroom, and they discover something very sinister. Let me uh, switch out to the slide. 
Harry and Ron looked under the sink where Myrtle was pointing. A small, thin book lay there. It had a shabby black cover and was as wet as everything else in the bathroom. Harry stepped forward to pick it up, but Ron suddenly flung out an arm to hold him back. What? said Harry. Are you crazy? said Ron. It could be dangerous. Dangerous? said Harry, laughing. Come off it. How can it be dangerous? You'd be surprised, said Ron, who was looking apprehensively at the book. Some of the books the ministries confiscated, Dad's told me there was one that burned your eyes out. And everyone who reads sonnets of a sorcerer spoke in limericks for the rest of their lives. And some old witch in Bath had a book that you could never stop reading. You just had to wander around with your nose in it, trying to do everything one-handed. And, all right, I've got the point, said Harry. The little book lay on the floor, nondescript and soggy. Well, we won't find out unless we look at it, he said, and ducked around Ron and picked it up off the floor. Harry saw at once that it was a diary and the faded year on the cover told him that it was fifty years old. He opened it eagerly. On the first page, he could just make out the name T.M. Riddle in smudged ink. Our first glimpse of the diary of Tom Riddle. Do we see here perhaps a little backstory related to Ron's distrust of books? Is it possible that Arthur Weasley spent much of Ron's childhood years terrifying him over the dinner table with tales of of sorceress and malevolent grimoires and tomes? Is this why Ron is so suspicious of, well, the library and Hermione's preoccupation with books? I also have to wonder if this account of the book that you could never stop reading, you just had to wander around with your nose in it trying to do everything one-handed. I mean... We've all had that experience, right? Many of us, I'm sure, have had that experience with a Harry Potter novel. I wonder if that was drawn from personal experience. What I really want to talk about, though, in this short scene is something that we're going to be tracking through tonight's entire reading, and that is specifically Harry's relationship with the diary itself. Because it is not an appealing book. It has a shabby black cover. It is nondescript and soggy. J.K. Rowling does everything that she can to de-emphasize the book's importance, and yet Harry can't seem to leave it alone. Ron gives, for Ron, very good reasons why Harry shouldn't interfere with it. You shouldn't really go around reading random books when you're at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. And Harry, it would seem to me, would be naturally inclined to listen to Ron, to follow this cautious advice, particularly under such mysterious circumstances, but Harry dodges around Ron. And it reminds me of, honestly, nothing so much as the influence of The Ring from J.R.R. Tolkien's The Lord of the Rings. Oftentimes when you're reading The Lord of the Rings, you can see the influence of The Ring exert itself in fairly de-emphasized, fairly tangential, fairly obscure ways. Characters will just suddenly shift in their demeanor. Characters will suddenly obsess over things that weren't terribly important to them mere moments before. Characters will suddenly forget things that were very important to them mere moments before. The influence of the ring is subtle and treacherous and uncanny. And when I read this excerpt, and when I read many of the excerpts that we're going to discuss in tonight's reading, I see that influence too. It all sounds... Sounds a little, a little evil, a little dangerous, but certainly beguiling too. What do you guys make of the, uh, what do you guys make of the diary? Let me cancel the, uh, cancel the slide here. 
Oh, Emily pulls out a great point. Yes, absolutely. The diary is the magical disguised as the mundane. I have a note on this later, but it is, importantly, a muggle artifact. It is a non-magical diary. It was purchased on the Vauxhall Road in a more prosaic and mundane location you would be hard-pushed to imagine. And that gives it, I mean, a specific relevance to, to Harry and his experience, of course, the other children at Hogwarts, particularly those children who grew up in the wizarding tradition, might not recognize the significance of a muggle artifact here at Hogwarts, or might not be as interested by it, as engaged by it. But there's something else happening there. There's something almost more symbolic. Because we have crossed the threshold between the mundane world and the magical, because we are now deep in the realm of fairy here at Hogwarts, a strictly muggle artifact, a strictly mundane artifact, arguably one of the most mundane artifacts you could imagine, has about it a certain charm and a certain glamour and a certain enchantment all of its own. It's not magic. It's almost, it's almost anti-magic. It's almost the exact opposite. You know, <laughs> Terry Pratchett used to say that, that the opposite of, of light is not darkness. Darkness is the absence of light. It is not the opposite. But there is something that is the opposite of light. There is anti-light out there. There is something that flows and moves and reflects like light, but removes it, erases it, drains it from the universe. And it almost feels as though the, the mundane weight and significance of Tom Riddle's diary works in a similar fashion. That this is almost a kind of magic but it's not like any kind of magic we've seen to date. And ultimately, for those of you who have read the whole series, for those of you who know what Tom Riddle's diary will ultimately be revealed to be, that's not inappropriate. That's not incompatible with our sense of the story as a whole. What do you guys make of that? <laughs> Let me say, I just saw a good comment there that I scrolled right by. Of course... Oh, yes, Richard says, it's described as mundane, but the fact it's described at all means it's important and more than it seems. Yes, certainly the, the uh, conservation of detail would suggest that all of these incidental details about the diary are, are important, yeah. Yes, and a few of us are saying, as Chrissy says, I can't talk about why I think Harry's attracted to it without giving spoilers. Though, again, we have to be a little suspicious of the notion that J.K. Rowling had this entire story planned out from the jump. I guess we can't really talk about the significance um, of the diary. I'll tell you what, at the end of the series, we'll, we'll hold a little spoiler zone where we talk about the diary. And we talk about this book as a whole, actually, in the context of the series. And we'll talk about how some of the ideas here were, were developed and some were revised and some were absolutely recanted. There are details contained in this book that are disavowed later with, with a great deal of, of force and emphasis. So we'll circle back around to all of those. And of course, we're going to talk a little about, uh, about Cornelius Fudge later in this session, who just isn't really the guy he turns out to be later, I guess. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. Good. <laughs> Danielle says, anti-light is one of those concepts that I forget about till someone terrifies me into remembering nice comparison, though. It is, it is almost an antithetical thought, right? Um, we're used to the idea of, of forces acting upon the world to disrupt a, a neutral, sustainable status quo. 
So silence and darkness may be the status quo, but there's nothing inherently harmful about silence and darkness. And we think about the things which populate that world, natural or magical, as being positive intrusions into an empty space. The idea of a negative intrusion into that space is, is disquieting. It does go against our understanding of the world and yet makes a kind of metaphorical sense. It makes a kind of, of almost synesthetic sense that can be very troubling. It's one of the things that I adore about the works of H.P. Lovecraft. He really manages to tap into those subtle subversions of our expectations simply about how the world works, about what is and is not. It's fascinating stuff that I could talk about at great length. And one of these days we will look at Lovecraft here in a Storywonk seminar. I would love to cover some of that. All right. Let's see if I've caught up. I think I have. Great. I think everything is is just a little slow tonight. I do apologize if I'm not seeing your uh if I'm not seeing your comments here as quickly as I ought. Uh Unfortunately, this is the the hardship of doing this over the internet, which is why WonkCon would be so great. Very little lag when you're talking to me in real life, I tend to find. All right. <laughs> So let's push on, because we cut from there. That scene, I should say, took place in the middle of January. That scene is is explicitly a couple of weeks after Hermione was first admitted to the infirmary. So we cut forward from there to early February, when Hermione is released from the infirmary. Harry can finally show her the diary. And we get, very briefly, one of my favorite scenes in the book, where Hermione behaves like a rational person who lives in an irrational world. The scene where Hermione is trying to crack the secret of the diary... I just adore. Ultimately, of course, we can't take it anywhere, but that specifically is why we have to sideline Hermione from this story. This is a more conventional and more broadly prosaic mystery than we'll get in the later books. This is a fairly conventional whodunit kind of plot, albeit, you know, a magically informed and magically magically complicated whodunit plot. So Hermione's presence, the presence, I should say, of Hermione's great intellect and acuity is a threat to the coherence of that plot, because it does become implausible that Hermione wouldn't figure it out. So, of course, ultimately, J.K. Rowling does the smart thing and has Hermione figure it out, and then removes her from the plot. Now, we can complain about that because we want Hermione to stick around. I certainly want Hermione to stick around, but it does make more sense this way, perhaps. Let's move on to the next chat here. Uh, the next chat, excuse me. It's because I'm looking at the chat when I say words out loud. That's no good. Let's move on to the next slide as Harry continues his connection with the diary. Harry couldn't explain even to himself, why he didn't just throw Riddle's diary away. The fact was that even though he knew the diary was blank, he kept absentmindedly picking it up and turning the pages, as though it were a story he wanted to finish. And while Harry was sure he had never heard the name T.M. Riddle before, it still seemed to mean something to him, almost as though Riddle was a friend he had had when he was very small, and had half forgotten. But this was absurd. He'd never had friends before Hogwarts. Dudley had made sure of that. Nevertheless, Harry was determined to find out more about Riddle. So next day at break, he headed for the trophy room to examine Riddle's special award, accompanied by an interested Hermione and a thoroughly unconvinced Ron, who told him he'd seen enough of the trophy room to last him a lifetime. Riddle's burnished gold shield was tucked away in a corner cabinet. It didn't carry details of why it had been given to him. Good thing, too, or it'd be even bigger and I'd still be polishing it, said Ron. However, they did find Riddle's name on an old Medal for Magical Merit, and on a list of old head boys. 
He sounds like Percy, said Ron, wrinkling his nose in disgust. Prefect, head boy, probably top of every class. You say that like it's a bad thing, said Hermione, in a slightly hurt voice. The further we get into this wonderful plotline, the, the further we get into Harry's engagement with the diary and, and Hermione's inquisitive curiosity about the diary and Ron's suspicion about the diary, the further we get into it, the more we exaggerate each of these characters' natural characteristics, I guess, their natural personalities. Ron just gets more and more suspicious and uncomfortable the further we get into this story. So here too, we see, well, some interesting elements. On the one hand, yes, we have the continuing attraction of the diary to Harry. He continues to be enchanted by it. He continues to be entranced by it. He continues to fall under its spell, much like the One Ring. That even extends to the point of investigating T.M. Riddle, rather than continuing to investigate the heir of Slytherin, though effectively that entire storyline has now come to something of an end because, well, it turns out it wasn't Draco, so what else could they possibly do to investigate this growing mystery? It is odd, though, that Riddle's trophy, Riddle's mention on the Medal of Magical Merit, the list of old head boys, nowhere on there is listed Tom Riddle's house. Hmm. I guess we'll put a pin in the mystery of his house and circle back around to it later. We are, though, I think, already drawing some connections between Harry and Tom. It's interesting here that Harry is immediately suspicious, in a way, immediately credulous, that Tom could be connected to his life in the Muggle world. And that could be, of course, a simple product of the fact that the diary is a muggle artifact, or it could be something else. It could be something greater. It could be an old memory, perhaps the oldest memory, tugging at Harry. I find that just fascinating. I find this entire section just just mesmerizing. Yeah. Allison says here in the YouTube chat, reading these two chapters, I was struck by how much everything would have been cut short had they mentioned anything, just anything, to McGonagall or Dumbledore. I think that's an excellent point, but brilliantly, it's a point that we're going to address in the very near future. Because Harry is going to recognize within Tom Riddle during the, the flashback sequence, Harry is going to recognize the same impulse within Tom as he himself has experienced, but he is going to see it for the first time from an adult perspective, or I guess just from an external perspective. I'm so fascinated by that. We'll, we'll get to that. Yeah. Yes, Evelyn says, I've always wondered that. Wouldn't Dumbledore be the natural person to go around and continue calling him Tom Riddle? Yes. Good. Oh, Sue calls out, love the Mandrakes maturing into sulky near teenagers. <laughs> and, and NYC says the Mandrakes freak me out. I have to say I am more in the latter camp there than the former camp. I find them, I find the Mandrakes, uh, I find them disquieting. I do. All right, let's move on to our next slide. In order to raise school spirits, 
and we're going to go a little deeper on this than you might expect having having read the, the, the reading today. In order to raise school spirits, Gilderoy Lockhart, who surely by now should have been fired, decides that the best thing for a school full of hormonal teenagers is an open invitation to experiment with love potions and with charms and also to send out singing dwarf telegrams. Before we get to the slide, I should say that this is the first of, I believe, and please correct me if I'm if I'm wrong on this, I believe there are only two references to dwarves in the Harry Potter series, period. I think we get a reference here, and then we get a reference at the beginning of the third book, when Harry is at the Leaky Cauldron. I don't think we get another reference. But given our speculation about goblins and about house elves, we might jump to the conclusion that another magical race of short stature may fall into the same category. I wish we had more information upon which to speculate. We are, though, going to move on to the receipt of Harry's valentine. His eyes are as green as a fresh pickled toad. His air is as dark as a blackboard. I wish he was mine. He's really divine. The hero who conquered the Dark Lord. Harry would have given all the golden gringots to evaporate on the spot. Trying valiantly to laugh along with everyone else, he got up, his feet numb from the weight of the dwarf, as Percy Weasley did his best to disperse the crowd, some of whom were crying with mirth. "'Off you go, off you go, the bell rang five minutes ago, off to class now,' he said, shooing some of the younger students away. "'And you, Malfoy!' Harry, glancing over, saw Malfoy sto stoop and snatch up something. Leering, he showed it to Crabbe and Goyle, and Harry realised that he'd got Riddle's diary. "'Give that back,' said Harry, quietly. "'Wonder what Potter's written in this?' said Malfoy, who obviously hadn't noticed the year on the cover and thought he had Harry's own diary. A hush fell over the onlookers. Ginny was staring from the diary to Harry, looking terrified. "'Hand it over, Malfoy,' said Percy, sternly. "'When I've had a look,' said Malfoy, waving the diary tauntingly at Harry." Percy said, as a school prefect, but Harry had lost his temper. He pulled out his wand and shouted, Expelliarmus! And just as Snape had disarmed Lockhart, so Malfoy found the diary shooting out of his hand into the air. Ron, grinning broadly, caught it. Let's talk first about the poem, because the poem, <laughs> and I may be going out on the limb here, I, I may not bring all of you with me on this particular analytical journey, but for me, that poem might be the best example of J.K. Rowling's writing skill that we get in the entire book, because it is perfect. It is not a perfect poem. It is not a good poem, but it is perfect for its application in the narrative here. It is, in its way, perfectly, consciously, deliberately, I'm sure, bad. It is a terrible poem but it is terrible in exactly the right way, and I love it with my whole heart. Let's look at the poem itself. I actually have another slide here. We'll, we'll move back to the slide in just a moment, but I broke out the, the poem here so that we could discuss it a little more carefully. You'll see here amphibracic trimeter with a catalectic fourth foot in the first line. That means that we're looking at sets, except for the third line, which we'll get to in a moment. The rest of the poem is constructed of sets of unstressed, stressed, unstressed syllables. His eyes are as green as a fresh pickled toad. So we see there the rhythm of emphasis and de-emphasis of stress and unstress. The third line is different. The third line is mimicking another structure, which will 
discuss in a moment. But you see here how the second and fourth line have these perfect amphibrachic trimeter structures. The first line has this extra pair of syllables at the end, the unstressed lid of, of pickled and the stressed toad. His hair is as dark as a blackboard. I wish he was mine. He's really divine. The hero who conquered the Dark Lord. It's got a very strong rhythm, but it is an imperfect rhythm. It doesn't quite fit. And we should note too that the rhymes are also imperfect. The only rhyme that actually works is the internal line there in the third line, mine and divine. But even that isn't quite right. Because what this is mimicking, and mimicking, I think, beautifully, is limerick structure. Limerick structure shares a lot of similarities with this structure. If you split that third line in two, I wish he was mine, line break, fourth line, he's really divine, fifth line, the hero who conquered the Dark Lord, it works a little better. It's still not perfect limerick structure. Let me show you a, uh, let me show you limerick structure here. Oh, this is the, uh, this is the limerick of Dixon Merritt and this uses a, a standard uh, a standard limerick structure. This is anapestic trimeter. Limericks are tricky because they follow this unstressed, unstressed, stressed, unstressed, unstressed, stressed, unstressed, unstressed, stressed, unstressed rhythm. And I said two unstressed at the beginning. Though the first of those is is catalectic is is dropped to give that bouncy rhythm as you move into the line. A wonderful bird is the pelican. His beak can hold more than his belly can. He can hold in his beak enough food for a week, though I'm damned if I know how the hell he can. So why am I so impressed with this? Well, <laughs> it reads to me as a perfect replica of the kind of poem that an 11-year-old student at Hogwarts would write. An 11-year-old, awkward, ungainly, but achingly sincere student. It reads to me as completely authentic, not to Ginny Weasley herself necessarily. I'm not sure that we have quite enough of Ginny's personality to be sure that this is the kind of poem that she would write. But to that archetype? Absolutely. Even in its ungainliness, even in its awkwardness, it doesn't quite work. Look at that first line. His eyes are as green as a fresh pickled toad. However you understand the structure of this poem, that is a bad line. It has too many or too few syllables. It sits awkwardly with the rest of the poem. And it's also completely unnecessary. Because all you have to do to make it work is take out the modifier pickled. His eyes are as green as a fresh toad. Then our emphasis falls exactly where it should. I mean, toad would be de-emphasized and fresh would be emphasized, but that's the kind of bouncy lyricism that you expect from a quasi-lyrical, a, a quasi-limeric structure. So for me, this works, this works just, just beautifully. The hero who conquered the Dark Lord, he's really divine. Eyes, hair, and also he's capable of defeating supernatural monsters. So as I said, I may not have brought you with me entirely on this, on this journey here, but I, I love this. And I should say too, because, uh, because I'm actually a big fan of of <laughs> of limericks. I have to show you this one. This comes from Zach Wienersmith, who is an incredibly talented writer who works on the Saturday Morning Breakfast Serial webcomic. If you don't read that webcomic, I urge you to go and check it out. 
This is just a thing of beauty. This limerick goes in reverse. Unless I'm remiss, the neat thing is this. If you start from the bottommost verse, this limerick's not any worse. And of course, you can read that limerick backwards from the bottom line upward, and it works beautifully. That may make a little more sense right here. Uh, in the context of this slide than it will on the podcast version, but there it is. So let's return to, let me scrub back here, all the way to the main slide. And let's look at the relationship between Ginny and Harry. Harry, by this point, is obviously aware that Ginny is interested in him. He is aware that she has a crush on him, that she is fascinated with him. He knows that it's her without anyone having to say that it's her. He knows that this Valentine's message comes from her. I love, I think, that her romantic interest, that if we can even call it a romantic interest, really, between a, an 11-year-old girl and a 12-year-old boy, and sometimes it is difficult to remember that Harry is a 12-year-old boy at this point, I love that we don't acknowledge it. I love that it is clear that it is present, that it clearly has an effect on the plot, but we don't acknowledge it. We don't ever look it in the eye. It is just a detail, and we get Harry's response, and his response is completely informed and makes coherent sense, but he is as disinterested as it's possible to be, I think, in the romantic interest of this 12-year-old girl, in the romantic interest of this sister of his best friend. Very, very complicated. We also get, we should note here too, a, a genuinely beautiful understated beat from Ginny as the diary is revealed. Ginny was staring from the diary to Harry looking terrified. We'll circle back around to that at the end of the book, of course. Emma says here in the YouTube chat, at this point I feel like Ginny is just starstruck more than anything, and I'm not sure that that's, I'm not sure that that's incorrect. I think, I think you might be exactly right there, Emma. One of the odd things about this book is that we establish Hermione's fascination with crush on Gilderoy Lockhart, and we circle back around to that a few times, culminating in this reading when we find the Get Well Soon card signed from Gilderoy Lockhart under Hermione's pillow. This is an adolescent crush of a completely conventional sort. It's complicated a little because he is a teacher at the school, but he's also a celebrity. And it's it's exactly the kind of crush that a girl like Hermione would have. At the same time, we have operating deep in the background Ginny's crush, Ginny's hero worship, Ginny's attraction to, Ginny's fascination with, Ginny's celebration of Harry. Are we supposed to see that as a function of Harry's fame as a counterpoint to the function of Lockhart's fame? Well, maybe we've drawn comparisons between Harry's fame and Lockhart's fame throughout the book so far, though it would seem too that we're pretty much done with that at this point. So is this the same story? Are we supposed to be drawing connections between these two narrative threads? Well, maybe, but I don't quite see the connection. I don't quite see the expected symmetries. I don't quite hear the reflected echoes, the expected echoes of, of one story in the other. How does that work for you guys? Is there anything in that, that, that any, anything in either story, I guess, that reminds you of the other? Oh, Evelyn says here, I love the idea of Riddle's influence that can be detected in Ginny's poem by the use of the term Dark Lord. 
Very nice. Oh, she's she's echoing something that someone said earlier, but I'm afraid you guys are being particularly uh, loquacious tonight, so I'm losing the track here. Right. When I was listening to it this time, as it was going on, I didn't think it was Ginny who wrote the poem, says Caitlin. I assumed she was just trying to hide the diary issues and Draco read her wrong. Oh, interesting. Huh, now that's... Hmm. That's a really interesting thought, isn't it? Do we get absolute confirmation that it was Ginny who wrote the poem? I'm not at all sure that we do. Though, I'm not really suggesting that we look more deeply into this. I'm not sure that Harry has another admirer out there in the uh, in the student body of Hogwarts. Right. Yes, uh, Dylan says, I love to think of what Ginny must have thought seeing her crush with the diary. Yes, we are going to... Um, hmm, we are going to circle back around. As, as I've said before, uh, I'm fascinated by the way that this story works from Ginny's perspective. So in the last session where we look back at the book as a whole, I want to spend a little time building a timeline of Ginny's experience basically, and, and looking at this entire plot, looking at this entire school year from her perspective and looking at what happens. Um, because that is a very quietly, very dark story. That is, that is unsettling, um, to say the least. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> I'm losing the thread here of, of the conversation. I do apologize. But I will go back and pick some of this up. <laughs> Sarah says, so Ginny supposedly becomes editor for The Prophet. I really hope she has a Poetry Sunday section or something. I hope that she writes volume after volume of, of terrible limericks. I love that a lot. So perhaps the most important thing that happens here actually has nothing to do with... Ginny actually has nothing to do with the Valentine reading. It's all about Harry and his reaction. It is forbidden by school rules, to use magic in the corridors. More importantly, Percy Weasley, uh, an authority figure that we've seen exert his authority throughout the book, a, a trusted, reliable authority figure, not a distant, questionable authority figure like Snape or Lockhart, for example, but, but a, a representative, one-of-us kind of authority figure. He is right there, and he is handling it, and Harry loses his temper and snaps off the Ex Expelliarmus spell. That, to me, reads unlike anything that Harry has done to date. Harry is traditionally slow to anger and very slow to take action. Ron is the impetuous one. Ron is the one who fires off a slug curse. Ron is the one who gets them into conflict with Draco Malfoy. Here, this is uncharacteristic, I think, of Harry. That That's certainly my read. Is this an example of the growing influence of the diary over him? Yeah, I think so. That's certainly how I interpret this. How does that work for you guys? I'm curious how you... Uh... Oh, oh, interesting. Um... <laughs> Let me see. Oh, Sarah says, now the book is playing with... Har uh, sorry, Scott says, it scrolled just as I was reading it. Scott says, now the book is playing with Harry's emotions and amplifying them. Yes, yes. Um, and there is a fanfic out there. Molly says that Kathleen suggested in chat two weeks ago that there was a fascinating Ginny POV fanfic. If you can find that, Molly, or Kathleen, or anyone, 
let me know and I will uh, include a link to that in the show notes because I'm always curious to see to see that. Yeah, good. Yes, and we do have some thoughts here on Twitter from Christina who says, why does Expelliarmus work on the diary? My understanding is that it's a disarming spell. So is the diary a weapon? So there are a couple of possible interpretations here. The first is that yes, yes, the diary is a weapon. I guess anything, you know, can be a weapon. Can we come up with some kind of headcanon explanation that that Draco Malfoy was about to hurl the diary at Harry? He was about to return it with a great deal of, of, of kinetic intent? Maybe. Maybe that's why it worked. Maybe there's something about the nature of the diary itself that makes it a weapon. Maybe there's something about its its inherent quality that, that turns it into something dangerous, something that is harmful enough that whatever rules govern the application of specific spells, Expelliarmus can, can cover the diary itself. Or, Harry's just that strong. We've touched on this peripherally a few times over now, but we've never really gone deep into it. And honestly, I'm not sure that we ever will, because I'm just not sure that there's enough material in Harry Potter. There's not enough of a framework for us to have a really productive discussion um, on this particular subject. But I'm fascinated by the interplay of, of the verbal component of the spell, the performative component of the spell, the, the unification of those two into the expression of magic, the role of the wand in the spell. For example, consider this. All of the spells are in Latin at Hogwarts. We have these short, punchy Latin phrases that, that seem to trigger or channel or focus the magic itself, which is great. But what about magic schools in other parts of the world. What about magic schools in Japan? Do they use Latin phrases? I'm not sure off the top of my head if there is actually a, a magic school in Japan, I'm just not realizing, but perhaps there is, or the Indian subcontinent, or China, or, or Russia, or wherever. Do they use these Latin phrases? Well, probably not, right? That would be weird. Which means that there's probably nothing about the phrase itself which is important. It's not Expelliarmus that that triggers the spell. It's almost as though Expelliarmus is a way of focusing the mind, that we learn to perform the spell as we say this word, and then the word acts as a shortcut. It works almost as muscle memory. Well, could a genuinely powerful wizard somehow circumvent, somehow short-circuit that system? Somehow wield magic the way that the goblins do, the way that the house elves do, without wand and spell, but simply by the exercise of will. Well, maybe. I find these interesting possibilities, I have to say. But yes, you're absolutely right. Uh, Expelliarmus should not technically have worked on the diary, though, as I say, we can uh, we can work around it. Oh, and... Uh, Yes, Kevin says, if Snape can make up his own spells, I'd imagine that spells are different in different languages. Yes, of course, this doesn't even this doesn't even encompass the conversation relating to the discovery of, or I guess arguably invention of new spells, depending on whether spells are natural or mechanistic, depending on whether they are are out there waiting to be discovered and and refined, or whether they have to be constructed from component parts. Again, we don't. Potions, potions, it would seem, are constructed from component parts. Enchantments, arguably, constructed from component parts. 
but raw spells? I don't know. When we talk about the exclusivity of knowledge here, when we talk about the ways in which knowledge of a given spell or a given countercurse, to use the Gilderoy Lockhart example, knowledge of a given countercurse gives a wizard greater power. But it seems as though these things are are simply present in the world, that they are that they are out there waiting to be learned, waiting to be discovered. I find this whole conversation fascinating. As I said, I'm not sure that we get enough information from the book itself to really delve deeply to to make any great claim with authority but certainly i find it i find it a, re, a rich vein of investigation yeah i would absolutely recommend to um if you haven't i'm sure many many of you have if you've never read uh ursula k Le Guin's a wizard of earthsea definitely go and read the first volume it is fantastic um there are a lot of really interesting echoes between that novel and the Harry Potter series as a whole, and certainly Le Guin's approach to a system of magic is 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 much more consistent, much more considered, much more complete than Rowling's. That's not to to dismiss Rowling's work. Hers is a different kind of story. Le Guin's story is a strict fantasy story with with mythic underpinnings. Harry Potter, as we've discussed, is almost more of a fairy tale, so we have to play within established conventions and, and established understandings. So uh, that's not to take anything away from what Rowling has accomplished with Harry Potter. These two books, which appear very similar, are trying to do, well, I guess not very different things, but, but significantly different things. So there's a different emphasis there contained within the text. All right. Potato Girl says, when performing a nonverbal spell, do you have to think of the incantation in your head, or is it just the intent? That's a great question. That's a genuinely great question. Are there wizards out there who are incapable of speaking? Not prevented momentarily, not, not bound and gagged, but actually incapable of speaking. Can they cast spells? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, Anna has a great point here. I wonder if the original spells were done in Latin to keep the lower classes away from magic, the same way the church used to do mass in Latin in order to keep average people away from the knowledge. Yes, certainly. Any organization exists in part to perpetuate the existence of that organization. We're going to talk about the bureaucracy of the Ministry of Magic later in this reading, and that certainly seems to be true of the ministry. One of the most powerful tools that we have in the real world as a means of preserving our own elite status is to make our language arcane, to, to preserve privacy or secrecy or power through the use of a private custom language. And many times in human history, that private custom language has simply been a language of antiquity, a language which is no longer used. Because then not only do you get to have the, the powerful, you know, restraint, the containment of knowledge, but you also get this appeal to ancient authority. So that's entirely possible. Once again, we just don't know enough about the origins of the wizarding world. All right. Yeah, good. All right. Let's look... Um, yeah, good, good, good. I am particularly struck by Harry acting out in this fashion. I am particularly struck by Harry losing his temper. Harry is not renowned for having a short fuse, and it is possible that he is protecting Ginny. On the one hand, it is possible that he is simply so humiliated and embarrassed. There 
are legitimate counter arguments, I think, to the idea that the diary is having this subtle and malign effect on Harry, but I find that the most compelling argument, not just for this particular scene, but for Harry's continual fascination with the diary, for the way in which Harry continues to turn the pages, even though he knows they're blank. He is obsessed with this thing, even extending back to him picking it up from the floor of Moaning Myrtle's bathroom. Yeah. All right, good. As a... <clears throat> Oh, Christina says on Twitter, <laughs> Christina quotes Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Xander, don't speak Latin in front of the books. Always, always wise advice, Christina. Uh, as a consequence of the run-in with Draco, Harry figures out that the diary responds to fresh ink and begins an unexpected correspondence, which we have here on the next slide. Oozing back out of the page in his very own ink came words Harry had never written. Hello, Harry Potter. My name is Tom Riddle. How did you come by my diary? These words, too, faded away, but not before Harry had started to scribble back. Someone tried to flush it down a toilet. He waited eagerly for Riddle's reply. Lucky that I recorded my memories in some more lasting way than ink. But I always knew that there would be those who would not want this diary read. What do you mean? Harry scrawled, blotting the page in his excitement. I mean, this diary holds memories of terrible things. Things that were covered up. Things that happened at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. This is our first direct correspondence, our first direct communication between Harry and Tom, and already we see connections. If Tom didn't know how to hook Harry's interest, then he was extremely fortunate in his choice of words. Things were covered up. Things that happened at Hogwarts School of Witchcraft and Wizardry. I love, too, Tom's subtly but disquietingly archaic use of language. How did you come by my diary? Is a completely a completely commonplace sentence. It doesn't stand out as unusual, but it's also not the kind of sentence that we would expect from Harry, say, or from Ron. We manage to communicate a distance here of time, a distance of perspective. Lucky that I recorded my memories in some more lasting way than ink. The formality of that is is really quite beautiful. And this, too, I think, is another example. We keep stumbling over these passages where I realize, to my delight, and want to communicate with the same delight, with the same enthusiasm, just how good and careful and thoughtful and precise a writer Rowling is. That's a beautifully composed and balanced sentence that communicates so much more than its literal content. Lucky that I recorded my memories in some more lasting way than ink. There is a depth and a poise and a confidence and a perspective there that is immediately almost intimidating, I guess, from a certain perspective, but certainly impressive. Tom is a character just right off the bat. 
And we see this too whenever new characters are introduced. Think of the introduction of Colin Creevey. I mean, that's a much less, <laughs> that's a much less polished, much less considered introduction, but we learn so much about Colin from his dialogue. And here too, we learn a great deal about Tom. Let's push on. I have some other things to say about Tom, but I want to move directly onward into the memory because the the details that I want to discuss, as I said back at the beginning of, of tonight's session, so many details here are introduced and then simply left. We, we fold them into the narrative, but we don't explore them fully. So they gain momentum. We're, we're moving forward more and more rapidly, but not in a way that allows us to delve particularly deeply into the text. This is why we're going to have such long discussions at the end of the book, just as we did with the first Harry Potter novel. So let's move directly on to the next slide. We're moving into the memory that, uh, that Tom offers Harry. Dippet clucked his tongue sympathetically. The thing is, Tom, he sighed, special arrangements might have been made for you, but in the current circumstances... You mean all these attacks, sir? said Riddle, and Harry's heart leapt, and he moved closer, scared of missing anything. Precisely, said the headmaster. My dear boy, you must see how foolish it would be for me to allow you to remain at the castle when term ends, particularly in light of the recent tragedy, the death of that poor little girl. You will be safer by far, at your orphanage. As a matter of fact, the Ministry of Magic is even now talking about closing the school. We are no nearer locating the, uh, source of all this unpleasantness. Riddle's eyes had widened. Sir, if the person were caught, if it all stopped. What do you mean? said Dippet with a squeak in his voice, sitting up in his chair. Riddle, do you do you mean you know something about these attacks? No, sir, said Riddle quickly. But Harry was sure it was the same sort of no that he himself had given Dumbledore. And of course, it is exactly that kind of no. The connections between Tom and Harry at this point can no longer be overlooked. This is the moment at which they become explicit in the text. Because this encounter between between Dippet and, and Tom Riddle, not only is it about, in effect, the Chamber of Secrets, not only is it about, in effect, Tom's relationship with his, his muggle life, not with the Dursleys, but with an orphanage, which may be the only thing actually worse than the Dursleys. Not only do he and Harry have a shared background, a shared experience, a shared perspective on Hogwarts, a shared passion for this magical world, this magical life, but they also conduct themselves in exactly the same way withholding information so that they can investigate. Doing what needs to be done. This isn't necessarily a, a criticism of either Tom or Harry, honestly. They're doing what needs to be done. Would Dippet have been able to effectively deal with the Chamber of Secrets if Tom had told him the truth? Perhaps, but also perhaps not. And we can see why Tom might keep this to himself and take direct action. We can be sympathetic to the the boy hero of of a boarding school adventure goodness knows we're a book and a half into the harry potter series we definitely should be sympathetic to the boy hero of a boarding school adventure by now or this is only going to get more difficult as we move forward harry has kept information from dumbledore tom riddle has kept information from dippet it's not a meaningless act it is 
an act that Harry at least struggles with, and with that reflection, we're, we're led to believe that Riddle, too, struggled with it. But they understand their own exceptionalism. They understand their own heroic role. They understand that this, in a sense, is a job for them. And here, too, we get the sense that if the Chamber of Secrets crisis had not been resolved 50 years ago, then Hogwarts would have been closed. We're, we're going to circle back around to that in the very next chapter. Not only that, but if Hogwarts had been closed, then Tom Riddle would have been cast back into the Muggle world potentially forever. Well, we daren't think what would happen to Harry if Hogwarts was closed now. Oh, this is a wonderful question. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing this right. Vicady in, in the YouTube chat says, are there wizard orphanages? That's a really interesting question, isn't it? Because we don't generally think of the wizarding world of having that kind of social infrastructure. Hmm. We do know from this conversation and from other conversations that students do not stay at Hogwarts over the summer. So Hogwarts, as much as it's a boarding school, does not also function as, as a general orphanage for, for waifs and strays. It's not impossible. The ministry might run some kind of, of severe and, and gray Victorian, you know, bureaucratic orphanage. That I can't imagine would be fun, but certainly, and, and 50 years ago too, if you think about the influence of purebloods, even 50 years ago, it's entirely possible that, that muggle-born wizards or half-blood uh, half wizards like Tom Riddle would have had a tougher go of it. Yeah. A wizard foster system, suggests Emily. Hmm. You see, on the one hand, I think immediately of the Weasleys, and I think, oh yeah, yeah, a wizard foster system would be great. And then I think of the Malfoys, and I think, no, that would be a terrible, terrible thing. <laughs> so I don't know. Yes, possibly. Possibly. I mean, we can only assume that there are, my God, any number of, of wizard orphans after the first wizarding war, right? We can only speculate that, that of the, I think the approximate number is 5,000. Of the 5,000 wizards who died during the wizarding war, there must have been a number of orphans left over. But to the best of my recollection, we don't investigate that directly. Hmm. Though I guess we do have characters... Like Neville. Now, does Neville live exclusively with his, his grandparents? I don't completely remember. <laughs> yeah. Yes, Matthew says, not every orphan child has relatives to go to. Sure, 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 sure. Bianca says, Harry and Riddle are mirror images of each other. Opposites, but connected. The connection between them is explored throughout the series. It's so interesting to see how J.K.R. wrote it so soon. I couldn't agree more. And it's so fascinating to see how, how deftly she manages to put Harry in Tom Riddle's shoes. She manages to, to match their perspectives, to unify their perspectives. Harry was sure it was the same sort of no that he himself had given Dumbledore. That is such a powerful line. Recognizing this kinship, recognizing this connection, a connection that is far deeper, far more precise, and in its way for that, far more sinister than his relationship with Ron or his relationship with Hermione. Tom is just like Harry. Yeah, good. Yes, says Pamela, Neville lives with his grandma, so maybe that's a possible case. Uh, I don't, I have to say, I can't remember what happened to, uh, what happened to Neville's parents. I do apologize, I'm sure it's out there on Pottermore or something, but yes. All right. Let's, um, good. 
All right, we're an hour in and we have just a little more material to to cover, so let's keep pushing forward. Oh, because this, I hope that uh, I hope that Caleb is still with us. Uh because Caleb sent me a great string of tweets today that inspired some really interesting thoughts. So so let's move on to the next slide. Um we're going to pick up the end of Tom Riddle's memory here when he is out in the corridor and he finds a large familiar-looking third-year boy, familiar-looking to Harry, I should say. Come on, Rubius, said Riddle, moving yet closer. The dead girl's parents will be here tomorrow. The last Hogwarts, the least Hogwarts can do, excuse me, is make sure that the thing that killed their daughter is slaughtered. It wasn't him, roared the boy, his voice echoing in the dark passage. He wouldn't, he never. Stand aside, said Riddle, drawing out his wand. His spell lit the corridor with a sudden flaming light. The door behind the large boy flew open with such force it knocked him into the wall opposite. And out of it came something that made Harry let out a long, piercing scream, unheard by anyone. A vast, low-slung, hairy body, and a tangle of black legs, a gleam of many eyes, and a pair of razor-sharp pincers. Riddle raised his wand again, but he was too late. The thing bowled him over as it scuttled away, tearing up the corridor and out of sight. Riddle scrambled to his feet, looking after it. He raised his wand, but the huge boy leapt on him, seized his wand, and threw him back down, yelling, No! Our introduction to a young Rubius Hagrid. So, Caleb, earlier, sent me this message on Twitter. He wrote, In the diary scene, we see that Riddle is the one who confronts Hagrid in the dungeons about Aragog. Spoilers for next week's reading. This spider monster has a name, and it is Aragog. Tom, Caleb writes, is the Slytherin head boy. I don't remember Hagrid's house being textual in the book, but J.K.R. has said that he was in Gryffindor. If Hagrid is keeping a pet in the dungeons, and Tom is the one that goes down to the dungeons to confront Hagrid, could death of the author suggest that he was a Slytherin. Because in my mind, if Hagrid was in Gryffindor, it would make more sense for Tom to go with the Gryffindor head boy or girl to see Hagrid. And if Hagrid is keeping an illegal pet, wouldn't he want it to be kept closer to him? The dungeons are closer to the Slytherin common room. So a couple of quick notes here. Tom Riddle is not, I believe, at this point, head boy. He will be, ultimately. Uh, I'm not sure... I. I went looking for this. <laughs> My read of it is that there is only one head boy or girl in the school. I don't think that each individual house has its own head boy or head girl. Certainly there are head boys from Slytherin and from Gryffindor, but also from Hufflepuff too. But certainly Tom was a prefect. And while we don't yet know that he was from Slytherin, we will get to that at the end of the book too. And you're absolutely right too, Caleb, that it's never mentioned in the text, but Rowling confirmed that Hagrid was Gryffindor in an interview given in the year 2000, though. I feel as though careful parsing, I actually pulled this out for a slide. Let's, let's take a quick look at this. I pulled this out from the first book because I think we could probably have guessed that Hagrid was Gryffindor. And what about Slytherin and Hufflepuff? Asked a very young Harry. Schoolhouses, there's four. Everyone says Hufflepuff are a load of duffers, but I bet I'm in Hufflepuff, said Harry gloomily. Better Hufflepuff than Slytherin, said Hagrid darkly. There's not a single witch or wizard who went bad who wasn't in Slytherin. You know who was one. I feel as though parsing that and, you know, looking at Hagrid's grammar, at least we can be confident at least that he's not Ravenclaw. 
we can be fairly sure that he's not Hufflepuff. He's clearly not Slytherin. So I think by a process of elimination, Hagrid is Gryffindor. And yet, and I mention this because we'll circle back around to it later in the reading, I still see Hagrid as Hufflepuff because I see Hagrid as fulfilling the Ron role. I see Hagrid as absolutely as being an older Ron. And Ron is Gryffindor only through the Ron Weasley exception, only because he's part protagonist, only because he's a part of our power trio. In every other way, Ron makes more sense to me as, as a member of Hufflepuff. All of the Weasleys do, really. They're much more concerned with, with loyalty and with kindness and with trust and with the qualities that we associate with Hufflepuff at its best than with bravery and heroism and standing on the front line. I mean, maybe we can make an exception for, for Percy. But Fred and George? I'm not so sure about Fred and George. Though we kind of have to question, too, familial, you know, tendency when it comes to two houses. It seems as though siblings with very different personalities can still be matched in the same house, or still sorted into the same house. We're confirming that there is, in fact, only one head boy and head girl at a time. That makes a lot of sense to me. But certainly, Tom Riddle as a prefect, that's interesting. That's that's very interesting. And it is true that Hagrid is keeping his most recent, or I guess, <laughs> I guess not most recent, the opposite of most recent, oldest, original, giant, monstrous pet, his original fantastic beast deep in the dungeons of Hogwarts. I am interested in that because I think Caleb's put his finger on something, something really interesting about Hagrid's character, which is that despite our affection for him, an affection which is kindled and then i think i think made concrete by his absolute loyalty to and affection for harry despite our affection for hagrid he's not necessarily the greatest person to have at hogwarts we talked about the excess that gets harry and hermione in trouble in the first book the whole dragon interlude that's not a necessary part of the unfolding plot exactly but it is a powerful reminder that Hagrid is, in his way, a counterpoint to everything that Hogwarts stands for. He's been expelled. His wand was broken. He's not allowed to practice magic. He's not supposed to be irresponsible with these just outright dangerous beasts. And yet, he has his little umbrella containing either the, the shards of his wand or his actual wand. It's possible that Dumbledore could have could have restored his wand after it was broken. So he has his umbrella. We know canonically that he practices magic. We know canonically that he has repeatedly endangered the children of Hogwarts with these, these giant animals, as well as apparently incrementally populating the Forbidden Forest with, with outright monsters. And it's tough to look at that and to see Hagrid as an uncomplicated figure. It's tough to look at that and see Hagrid as an outright hero. He feels to me more in the line of, of the chaotic neutral character. Uh, chaotic neutral. Chaotic good, I guess, to be charitable. He's, he's more of, of an exile. He's more of a countercultural figure. Connected to the school through his loyalty to Harry. Yes, obviously, but more importantly, perhaps, uh, in the beginning of the story, his loyalty to Dumbledore. Hagrid is not an uncomplicated figure. But I genuinely don't know, at this point in the series, how, 
how emphatically we are supposed to believe Harry's sudden proclamation that Hagrid is the one who opened the Chamber of Secrets. This is, it will surprise nobody to learn, misdirection. Turns out, you guys, Hagrid didn't actually open the, the Chamber of Secrets. Turns out, I hate to shock you, that Hagrid isn't actually the heir of Slytherin. But we're pretty forceful at the end of this chapter. Harry is, is in no way unclear that it was Hagrid. We are certainly led to believe that the giant spider monster is whatever creature has been, has been roaming the corridors of Hogwarts, petrifying people. I just genuinely don't know whether we are supposed to be convinced by it or whether we are supposed to be primed by Harry's absolute certainty that the heir of Slytherin is Draco Malfoy and then the Hufflepuff trio the Hufflepuff heroes, their absolute certainty that Harry is the heir of Slytherin. And now this absolute certainty that it's Hagrid. I just don't know. I just don't know what we're supposed to think. What do you think? Are we supposed to believe that it is Hagrid or not? Kathleen says, I also wonder how much of these things with Hagrid are othering. There's something beastly to Tom et al. about his wandlessness and his love of animals, and it separates him from the other characters. No, certainly, there is a way of looking at Hagrid that is, oh, God, that is tragic. That is... That is really uh, profoundly disturbing. Not just about Hagrid's personal experience, but about wizarding culture in general. His size, of course, his manner, his his bluff exterior, his residence in a rundown shack on the edge of Hogwarts school grounds. And we're told that he's the groundskeeper. He is, in fact, the groundskeeper for Hogwarts. But what does Hogwarts need with a groundskeeper? What is Hagrid's actual day-to-day -day job? What separates Hagrid from a weird hermit who happens to live near the school. He has responsibilities, but they seem to be responsibilities of a kind of voluntary dispensation from Dumbledore. We can throw Hagrid a bone and make him responsible for this, but you also get the sense that the school would get along probably just fine without Hagrid. So I don't know. Again, it's, it's, a really, it's a really complicated and challenging idea because it's the kind of idea that makes intuitive sense to a child. It's, it's the kind of idea that, that works when you're looking at this from the perspective of a children's story. Yeah. Let's see here. Sarah says, I think we're led to believe he may have accidentally opened it. That's interesting. Good. And then NYC says Dumbledore is into free-range parenting, which, yes, he super is. Yeah, good. Pamela says, no, we're supposed to believe that Tom frames Hagrid to achieve his own ends. Certainly the... The, the tone and the timbre of, of, of Tom's dialogue in that section is much colder than we might expect. It's much more forceful than we might expect. We're clearly, even in that moment, presenting Hagrid, the, the young Rubius, as, um, as a gentle figure, I guess, even as he is, is leaping on Tom and, and smashing him to the ground to protect this giant spider. We're still seeing traces of the Hagrid that we know. I, I can absolutely read it that way too, yeah. The problem with that, I think, is when we come out of the flashback, when we come out of the memory, and Harry says outright, Hagrid was the one who opened the Chamber of Secrets. That feels as though it's a deliberate piece of misdirection to the reader, but I genuinely don't know. I don't know anyone who would be won over by that. I don't know anyone who, at this point in the book, would go, oh my god, it was Hagrid the whole time! 
I don't know. I'm sure there are people out there. I'm sure there are people out there. There are people who are uh, who are uh, suspicious of Hagrid. Yeah. All right. Let's uh, let's keep pushing on. Thank you very much, by the way, Caleb, for that fascinating thought. I think that's 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 a really nice piece of textual reading because I think you're entirely right. One of the most damning things in that entire flashback sequence is Hagrid being present in the dungeons specifically. That That is a space that is associated with, with Slytherin, you know? All right. So Harry, as I said, leaps to the obvious conclusion. We move then into chapter 14. We get the... Uh, Yes, Pamela says when I read it the first time, I didn't believe what Harry saw. Yes, I think that's a uh, that's a, that's a fairly common uh, beat there. And Zygmorphic says Hagrid reminds me of the BFG. For those of you who perhaps haven't read the 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 Roald Dahl classic, the BFG, there is an archetype there. Yes, yes, the idea of the gentle giant, the idea of the friendly giant, that's uh, an archetype that has been echoed throughout um, throughout children's literature of the 20th century into modern children's literature, into modern movies and TV shows. I think that's that's an archetype that we're familiar with, the, the large and imposing physical figure who is nonetheless gentle and oftentimes, possibly more often than not, attuned to animals attuned to nature attuned to the, the gentle rhythms of the natural world which we might even argue is something of a misrepresentation right because let's be honest the natural world is not that gentle the natural world is not you know that that peaceful and benevolent it is all too often red in tooth and claw and to rolling's credit we don't actually shy away from that the earlier beat before um Oh my goodness, before Harry finds Justin, when he finds uh, Hagrid in the corridor and they have that brief conversation, Hagrid is walking along carrying a dead cockerel, which he has obviously recovered because the, the school is coming under attack. He's suspicious of, of attacks from the Forbidden Forest. So there's something there too about this this preservation of animal life in and around Hogwarts. Yeah. All right. Let's keep pushing on and say farewell for now to Hermione. Um, we do get some academic housekeeping as our students are, are choosing their electives for their third year. Apparently suddenly very confident the school's going to be just fine. We've gone a few months now without a major incident, without the, the petrification of another student. So the school's probably going to be fine and we'll come back for our third year and we should choose our elective topics. There's a certain amount of, 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 uh, of academic complication there then we're dealing with the the prelude to the quidditch match then the next day oh and of course of course crucially at this point tom riddle's diary is stolen tom riddle's diary goes missing from harry's dormitory and only someone who knows the gryffindor password could have done it we'll come back to that uh in next week the week after the week after i guess the next day then right before the quidditch match against hufflepuff harry is thinking about the missing diary as he is pretty much constantly doing, and not thinking about telling anyone his suspicions about Hagrid. This is one of the things that makes me think that we're not ever supposed to really believe that Hagrid deliberately opened the Chamber of Secrets. The the degree to which Harry keeps this quiet, I think, is, is fascinating. Um, but then Harry once again hears a mysterious and sinister voice. As he left the Great Hall with Ron and Hermione to go and collect his Quidditch things, another very serious worry was added to Harry's growing list. He had just set foot on the marble staircase when he heard it yet again. Kill this time. Let me rip. Tear. 
He shouted aloud, and Ron and Hermione both jumped away from him in alarm. The voice, said Harry, looking over his shoulder. I just heard it again. Didn't you? Ron shook his head, wide-eyed. Hermione, however, clapped a hand to her forehead. Harry, I think I've just understood something. I've got to go to the library. And she sprinted away up the stairs. What does she understand? said Harry, distractedly, still looking around, trying to tell where the voice had come from. Ron's more than I do, said Ron, shaking his head. But why's she got to go to the library? Because that's what Hermione does, said Ron, shrugging. When in doubt, go to the library. I want to read from, uh, good. <laughs> um, oh, Elizabeth pulls out a really great point here in the YouTube chat. She writes, one thing I really liked is that they established at Christmas when Hermione woke Harry and Ron up on Christmas morning that Gryffindor girls can get into the boys' dorms, so it opens up every Gryffindor as a suspect Elizabeth. That is a great catch. I hadn't thought of that at all, but you're absolutely right. We make it very clear that it's unusual, but certainly possible, for the Gryffindor girls to to go into the boys' dormitory, and presumably vice versa, though to the best of my recollection, we don't do that for... For for good and compelling reasons when we're dealing with 12-year-olds. Good. Yeah, that is, a, that is a really great catch. Good work. All right. Uh, let's look at this email that I received from Travis, who writes to me, I am also really intrigued by Hermione's arc in the story thus far. Starting from the petrification of Mrs. Norris, Travis writes, I feel as though she, and not Harry, has been driving the majority of the plot. She was the one who asked Professor Binns to explain the history of the Chamber of Secrets. She is the one to not only suggest Polyjuice Potion, but also convince Ron and Harry of the plan. She is the one to trick Lockhart into signing the permission slip for the restricted section. She is the one to suggest making a distraction in Snape's potions class. She is the one to actually do the stealing itself. She is the one who successfully brews the potion, though she is not there for its implementation. Finally, Hermione is the one who figures out the creature is a basilisk. I suppose that's a minor spoiler, but if you don't know what the purpose of the basilisk is, it won't really hurt. But yes, Hermione is the one who figures it out. Hermione is the one who, at this moment, has unraveled, well, presumably the entire mystery? If she's figured out what the creature is, then suddenly so many of these disparate elements make sense. Suddenly we can start to build a meaningful narrative relating to all of these incidental details. Travis, I think that is a great breakdown. And I'm really struggling to to oppose it, honestly. Um, I think that there's a really strong argument that Hermione, resourceful as she is really is the driving force behind this plot. Now, what does that mean? We've talked before, I think, about the ways in which Harry and Ron and Hermione work as an ensemble protagonist, how they work as a power trio to drive the action of these stories, but how, when all is said and done, Harry's the guy. Harry's the guy with his name on the front of the book. Harry's the guy who's going to 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 fight the dragon. Harry's the guy who's going to, to make the killing blow. Harry's the guy who's going to save the princess and the world and presumably the cheerleader too. Harry is the guy. But through most of the stories, our heroes work in concert. Our heroes work together. They demonstrate their strengths. This is explored fully. This is, this is almost um, codified at the end of the Philosopher's Stone, of course, where they are challenged 
very specifically according to the strengths of the ensemble, not according to Harry's individual strengths. I like that. I like that a great deal. And I like that Hermione is as capable as she is. I do think that in the action of Chamber of Secrets, we have perhaps gone a little far because the counterpoint to Hermione taking care of absolutely everything and driving the bulk of the action throughout this book is that Ron, as much as I adore him, contributes relatively little once we get to Hogwarts. He doesn't really add to our understanding of the unfolding mystery. He doesn't really move us any closer to resolution. Now, he will, ultimately. He will have a role to play, and he's always, of course, Ron. He's always the dauntless friend, no matter what. But up to this point, he's really been a naysayer more often than not. He's been the one pushing back against Hermione, pushing back against Harry. And that's not a flattering role for Ron. Now, I do think that this is a legitimate problem with the book. I think this is an imperfection in the book. I think the focus that's given to Hermione isn't... It isn't purposeful. This is not a story that is deliberately oriented around Hermione, though clearly Hermione does have the greatest personal stake in preventing the the death of all muggles at the school, of all, all mudbloods, all muggle-born wizards. I think that... I think we simply go to Hermione as our one-size-fits-all problem-solving solution, that she is our, our multi-purpose toolkit of, of ideas and perspectives and, and insights. She's the one who can fix the problem. She's the one who can drive the plot forward, and we believe it because it comes from Hermione, and I think that's fine. I think that's great. Hermione is a fantastic character, and I adore her, but yes, 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 there is a plot problem here, which is that Harry has been sidelined. Now, there is a way of doing this story, and I think that it works a lot better now. Now that Harry has, at least peripherally, fallen under the influence of the diary, we're opening up a little space between Harry and Ron and Harry and Hermione. We're opening up a little, a little distance here in the Power Trio. But that's a very recent event. We didn't do that earlier. So while Harry's the one who is stumbling from adventure to adventure, Hermione really is the one who's, who's doing the legwork, who's driving the plot forward in the most interesting and compelling way, which is why, ultimately, we have to get to this point. This is why we have to... Well, let's move on to the next slide and wrap up our thoughts on Hermione here. I mean, we're assuming, of course, that Hermione is right. <laughs> that as she runs up to the library, she has really figured out what's going on. I have no doubt, really, that, that, that that's the question. Let's, uh, let's take a look here. Okay, good. Uh, so Professor McGonagall interrupts the Quidditch match before it can begin and warns everyone that they must return to their dormitories, uh, because there has been another attack. Harry and Ron run to the infirmary. They run to the hospital wing where they find Madame Pomfrey was bending over a sixth year girl with long curly hair. Harry recognized her as the Ravenclaw they'd accidentally asked for directions to the Slytherin common room, and on the bed next to her was Hermione, Ron groaned. Hermione lay utterly still, her eyes open and glassy. They were found near the library, said Professor McGonagall. I don't suppose either of you can explain this. It was on the floor next to them. She was holding up a small, circular mirror. Harry and Ron shook their heads, both staring at Hermione. I will escort you back to Gryffindor Tower said Professor McGonagall heavily. I need to address the students, in any case. 
this is a real ah, a real gut punch as you're reading this book, particularly because we've been talking about the echoes of the Philosopher's Stone that we've seen here in the Chamber of Secrets. And these are echoes that are only going to intensify next week. Next week is going to read, well, hey, an awful lot like the comparable chapters from the Philosopher's Stone. There are a lot of recurring details. But to attack Hermione directly, to incapacitate Hermione, to potentially threaten Hermione's life, well, this is new. This is unexpected. And while I absolutely acknowledge the the necessity of this plot contrivance, we have to take Hermione out of the running, because at this point it would be unconvincing if Hermione didn't figure out everything that was going on and, and move toward a working solution. We have to take her out of the story, but taking her out of the story really packs an emotional punch. I find this enormously powerful, and I find... Harry and Ron's genuine emotional connection to Hermione, honestly, just, just lovely. It's so touching. And of course, it doesn't hurt that we get a little Professor McGonagall in there too. And I don't know how many times, despite the fact that it is said outright there, I don't know how many times I had to read this book before I realized that the Ravenclaw girl, this is the girl who will later be named Penelope Clearwater, is the same girl that is sharp to Ron and Harry when they're disguised as Crab and Goyle. And the revelation that it wasn't just a Ravenclaw girl who was snippy with these second-year Slytherin boys, it was a Ravenclaw prefect. That really confirms my idea that actually for... A lot of the kids, for a lot of the time, being in Slytherin would really suck. It would be really tough to be a Slytherin kid a lot of the time. Sure, when you're hanging out with the other Slytherin kids, it's great. Sure, when you're getting preferential treatment from Snape, it's great. Sure, when you're Draco Malfoy, it's great. But when you're Crab, when you're Goyle, I can't imagine that's always, always terribly easy. So removing Hermione is an interesting, a powerful, a, a emotionally devastating choice. And it also, importantly, makes the conflict more personal. Because now that we've really removed Harry as the focal point of, of suspicion, now that we're kind of, we're on the upswing out of the Harry is the heir of Slytherin conspiracy theory at, 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 at Hogwarts, we need some way of making this feel immediate and feel urgent and feel personal. And this, I think, really accomplishes that goal. So I, I do think it's a very deft piece of plotting while I can, at the same time, absolutely recognize its necessity. But sometimes plot elements are necessary. Sometimes you write yourself into a corner. You have to do the difficult thing. You can still do that difficult thing well. And I think that Rowling does it. I do think it's a little overshadowed because these chapters are simply so dense because they are simply so crowded but it really works it really works for me anyway <laughs> and i see here from the chat too that it, it really works for a lot of you too good oh and kate confirms on twitter later it is proven that girl that boys excuse me can't go into the girls dormitory can't remember which book i absolutely believe that that is true i have a vague hint of a recollection that you're absolutely right kate that well that's just an outrageous double standard clearly i mean <laughs> good good 
Oh, and Dylan the Joel here in the YouTube chat says this scene also serves as a minor book into Hermione's mudblood thread in the same that was Justin uh, in the same way that Justin's petrification bookends him telling Harry that he was Muggleborn. Yes, we're clearly targeting very specific specific people. Yeah, good. Yes, and and we're making some connections here with with Penelope and and Percy. I have to tell you, we're, we're not going to get an opportunity to talk about that until the very final week, but. Um, the way that the Penelope Percy story is handled, I mean, from from what, the second chapter of the entire book? It's just, it's constantly on the back burner throughout the entire novel. It's handled so beautifully, so deftly. It's, it's really well done. I, I think the way that that story unfolds and the way that Ginny's story almost in parallel unfolds, I think that that's enormously skillful. I genuinely love the depth that we're seeing from, from Rowling's writing in Chamber of Secrets. That is the most powerful and compelling counterpoint to, to the, the relatively thin story that we got in, in the Philosopher's Stone. And that's, you know, in part a recognition of her developing skills as a writer, but it's also in part a recognition of the developing perspective of Harry and the others, you know, this is this is not new, so we can start to write with a little more nuance and a little more sophistication and much, much more depth. Percy's story is absolutely one of my favorites. I love how how that is so powerfully reframed. All right, so we have two more slides to get to here at 10.30, because I thought I was going to get at in like an hour and 20 minutes this week, which of course we're not. Two more slides to get to, both of which are set in Hagrid's hut, because at this point, Harry decides that he, despite his loyalty to Hagrid, he simply has to investigate, and hey, he remembers that he has this convenient invisibility cloak. So he and Ron sneak off to Hagrid's hut, and they're about to question Hagrid when Hagrid himself is interrupted by the man from the Ministry. Let me share this slide with you. Bad business, Hagrid, said Fudge in rather clipped tones. Very bad business. Had to come. Four attacks on Muggleborns. Things have gone far enough. Ministry's... Ministry's got to act. I never, said Hagrid, looking imploringly at Dumbledore. You know I never, Professor Dumbledore, sir. I want it understood, Cornelius, that Hagrid has my full confidence, said Dumbledore, frowning at Fudge. Look, Albus, said Fudge uncomfortably. Hagrid's record's against him. Ministry's got to do something. The school governors have been in touch. Yet again, Cornelius, I tell you that taking Hagrid away will not help in the slightest, said Dumbledore. His blue eyes were full of a fire Harry had never seen before. Look at it from my point of view, said Fudge, fidgeting with his bowler. I'm under a lot of pressure, got to be seen to be doing something. If it turns out it wasn't Hagrid, he'll be back and no more said. I've got to take him, got to, wouldn't be doing my duty. Take me, said Hagrid, who was trembling. Take me where? For a short stretch only, said Fudge, not meeting Hagrid's eyes. Not a punishment, Hagrid, more a precaution. If someone else is caught, you'll be let out with a full apology. Not Azkaban, croaked Hagrid. We circle back around to our previous mention of Azkaban, a powerfully evocative word in the Harry Potter universe. We brought it up once before, basically so that we can echo it here. And this is... A really interesting scene. And it's a really interesting scene because there is almost no concession here to Harry's childlike perspective, his childish, his his immature, his juvenile perspective. This is no longer a part of the children's story. This is no longer a part of the boarding school adventure. This is a guy from the government telling the uh, the, the, the head teacher of the school that the groundskeeper has to be incarcerated for his own protection and for the protection of others. There are 
of course, some very complicated discussions which orbit around the idea of this kind of proactive incarceration. This isn't necessarily the best time to get into those. I think we're going to have an opportunity to talk about crime and punishment more fully when we get to the third book in the Harry Potter series. This is difficult, obviously. This is heartbreaking in its way, and yet not impossible to understand. It's not impossible to understand where we're going with this. And we get there because we've had this echo from Tom's diary, because we've seen this event play out before, because we understand that the Chamber of Secrets could easily mean the end of Hogwarts. And as we've speculated, if the Chamber of Secrets means the end of Hogwarts, the Chamber of Secrets effectively means the end of wizarding society. We talked before about the power that educational institutions have to shape and define a culture. That's why it was so important to Salazar Slytherin that Hogwarts be focused on the pure blood families. Because by focusing on the pure blood families, you redefine wizarding culture. If Hogwarts closes, if Hogwarts is changed, if Hogwarts is modified, then the wizarding world is irrevocably altered. We also here have, I guess, the, the absence of, of an exploration of Hagrid's human rights. This idea that he can be incarcerated, this idea that he ought to be incarcerated, this idea that Dumbledore can object but can't actually prevent it, well, that kind of speaks to an older tradition too. In fact, when we're talking about this, when we're talking about... Uh, Authority. Let's push on to the last slide of the evening because I want to bring in, as if things weren't bad enough for poor old Hagrid, I want to bring in the, the last nail in the coffin, one Lucius Malfoy. Dreadful thing, Dumbledore, said Malfoy lazily, taking out a long roll of parchment. But the governors feel it's time for you to step aside. This is an order of suspension. You'll find all twelve signatures on it. I'm afraid we feel you're losing your touch. How many attacks have there been now? Two more this afternoon, wasn't it? At this rate, there'll be no muggle-borns left at Hogwarts, and we all know what an awful loss that would be to the school. Oh, now, see here, Lucius, said Fudge, looking alarmed. Dumbledore suspended. No, no, last thing we want just now. The appointment or suspension of the headmaster is a matter for the governors, Fudge, said Mr. Malfoy smoothly. And as Dumbledore has failed to stop these attacks... See here, Malfoy, if Dumbledore can't stop them, said Fudge, whose upper lip was sweating, and I mean to say, who can? That remains to be seen, said Mr. Malfoy with a nasty smile. But as all twelve of us have voted, Hagrid, Hagrid, excuse me, Hagrid leapt to his feet, his shaggy black head grazing the ceiling. And how many did you have to threaten and blackmail before they agreed, Malfoy, eh? He roared. Dear, dear, you know... "'That temper of yours will lead you into trouble one of these days, Hagrid,' said Mr. Malfoy. "'I would advise you not to shout at the Azkaban guards like that. They won't like it at all.'" If Cornelius Fudge has the power of bureaucracy, it is a functional, diffident, pragmatic, practical, accountable kind of power. And it is a kind of power that must be exercised judiciously. Lucius Malfoy has the power of aristocracy. It is a 
heedless, tyrannical kind of power exercised by fiat. We see here the precise and effective contrast that we've been alluding to all through the book, the ongoing conflict between specifically Lucius Malfoy and Arthur Weasley, but more generally between the old pure blood families and the ministry. Well, here that is codified. Here that is absolutely made plain and explicit. And we don't just see the conflict. We see the nature of the conflict. Cornelius Fudge has to exercise his power judiciously. And Lucius Malfoy has no such restraint because his power is not is not rooted in an accountability. He is the power that he wields in a very real sense. Cornelius Fudge is not. And I have to say too that uh, we're going to circle back around to Cornelius Fudge in subsequent books and he is going to be a <laughs> he's going to be a much less pleasant figure. I actually really like Cornelius Fudge in this book. I empathize with him and I really enjoy the way that he's written. If you look at his his short clipped sentences, I really love that structure. Um, so I, I can empathize with Fudge. And what's interesting too here is that this version of, of Cornelius Fudge, as opposed to the version that we will see in subsequent books, fulfills an interesting role here in this scene specifically because Hagrid, as I've said before, may technically be Gryffindor by, by J.K.R.'s account, but fulfills that Ron Weasley Hufflepuff kind of role. Now, Dumbledore is Gryffindor to the bone. Malfoy equally Slytherin to the bone. And it's very easy to look at Cornelius Fudge to see his well-ordered and thorough and pragmatic mind as being indicative of a Ravenclaw persona. Now, to the best of my recollection, we never actually find out uh, where Cornelius Fudge was sorted. We do know that he went to Hogwarts, but we don't know which house he was in. I don't think, ultimately, that we can really defend his position in Ravenclaw, but I think that within the pages of this book, we can speculate. I think an account can be made that he represents here Ravenclaw, that, that in this tiny hut, as Harry and Ron are looking on from beneath the invisibility cloak, we really do see an echo of the conversation which defined Hogwarts during its founding, which has defined, in a way, Hogwarts for the last thousand years. Let's look at the YouTube chat here. Oh, we're talking about financial aid and money. Yes, I actually had a really interesting email about that. I'm hoping to circle back around to that next week, if I have a little time to do it. It's... You know, it, it's one of these things that may actually have to wait until the later book when we have a little more uh, a little more direct material to talk about. But yes, it's it's fascinating. Potato Girl says, I also noticed that in book two and the start of book three, everyone refers to the Azkaban Guards, capital A, capital G, not mentioning the name of the creatures. Yes, you can sometimes track the evolution of J.K. Rowling's ideas. <laughs> I think Cornelius Fudge, honestly, is an example of that. I don't understand why this isn't Arthur Weasley. I don't understand why Arthur can't be sent as a representative of the ministry. I mean, I understand that this is not Arthur's job at the ministry, but desperate times call for desperate measures. He could have been, you know, seconded for this particular task. It is absolutely the role that we've seen him fulfill previously as uh, 
the, the voice of opposition to the aristocratic power, the 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 codified upper class power of of the Malfoys and the other pure blood families. I think Arthur Weasley would have fit beautifully here. But Cornelius Fudge gives us another perspective. Later, Cornelius Fudge will turn out to be a very useful character for J.K. Rowling, so he will be a little modified. It's clear, I think, that he was introduced here and then revised when we come back for for Azkaban. Yeah. Elizabeth says, Arthur can't come to the school because then he'd talk to his kids. <laughs> I like the idea that, that, that Arthur would turn down that, that opportunity. Yes. Good. And Pamela says, that's why they're so, oh, referring to the Azkaban guards, that's why there's such a shock when they're introduced. Yes, I absolutely believe. Yeah. Oh, and MIC says, Arthur can't come to school because his car ran away into the woods. Ah, oh, spoilers for next week, I guess, huh? <laughs> so I really do love, let me uh, cancel that slide. I really do love the, um, the power dynamics that we have here, because we have represented in in Hagrid's hut, Hagrid, who is powerful, who has a kind of agency and authority, a kind of ability to define his own life that Harry recognized right from the beginning of the first book, that, that Hagrid was the one who was able to expand Harry's world. And that is a kind of power. So we have Hagrid. And then we supersede Hagrid with Dumbledore, who is the head of the school, a figure toward whom Hagrid looks with affection and with, with unshakable loyalty. But there's clearly a recognition of Dumbledore's authority there. Then we supersede that with Cornelius Fudge, with the bureaucratic kind of authority, with this pragmatic kind of, of political you know, authority by compromise and popular assent. That, that, yes, it would be unjust to lock Hagrid up, but it would be arguably more just than not locking Hagrid up, and it's a difficult situation for someone in his position, so we have that, that bureaucratic take on power, and then that is superseded, in turn, by Lucius Malfoy. I just think that's terrific. I just think that's so rich, and it's so profoundly adult. And I think that it's within these chapters... First with Harry's reflection on the memories of Tom Riddle, and then with this scene. It is in these chapters, it is in tonight's reading, that we begin to see, I think, the real shape of what the Harry Potter series will be in the end. What it will ultimately turn into. There are the seeds of the Prisoner of Azkaban. There are the seeds here of the Order of the Phoenix. You know, we're seeing what Harry's adult experience will be like. And we're seeing it directly. We're not inferring this. This this really is Harry peering into a life that he's not yet prepared for. And I find that enormously fascinating. I just think it's it's a beautifully written excerpt. Though, as I said, you know, yeah, a little fast and a little frantic. And it wouldn't really have killed us to... It wouldn't really have killed us, I think, to cut a little of the Polyjuice potion over the over the Christmas break and to pull some of this material back just a little so we're not accelerating as rapidly into the final four chapters of the book. I mean, it is really all downhill from here. We're, we're traveling at an accelerating pace, and there's a lot of ground to cover. And if you think this week's reading was fast, just wait for the next reading, which is, let me show the, uh, let me show the final slide here as we wrap things up. Not next week, but the week after, Friday, October the 14th. It's going to be an afternoon session, Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time, chapters 15 and 16. As I said, that is session 7. The following week, we are going to wrap up the book, and the week after that, which 
if I'm right and my basic grasp of, of the calendar is correct, will in fact be Friday, October the 28th for the very last session. That will be our opportunity to talk about the Chamber of Secrets movie. I will try possibly on the Tuesday of that week. Let me double check the date there. Possibly Tuesday the 25th, possibly Wednesday the 26th. I'm thinking about organizing a live tweet sometime in the evening, probably around 7 or 8 p.m. Eastern, so that we can all get together and watch the movie and tweet about it and talk about it. We have a uh, chat room over on the StoryWonk forum that I might be able to open up for, for, for discussion in there. There are a few different avenues that we can explore so that we can live tweet the movie and discuss it in real time, as it were. And then we're going to come back that Friday for a full discussion of the movie, of its structure. The text is an adaptation. It's still not that great, guys. I hate to say it. This is the last one, though. This is the last Columbus uh, adaptation, and it's better than the first, but it still reads like a page-for-page -page literal adaptation rather than the much more purposeful adaptations that we're going to get from the third movie onward. Now, those are going to be a varying success, too, but at least they're going to be, to a degree, telling their own stories in their own way, which is... is not really the case of uh, with the first ones. Yeah, okay. Oh, Landsprite says 2 p.m. equals midnight here. I love you guys, but I love sleep more. That is absolutely the right priority that you should have, Landsprite. I am sorry. <laughs> We're trying to juggle these times so that everyone, uh, everyone can make it, as many people as possible at least can make it. I do think that the last session... I think we're going to have one more. We'll have the 2 p.m. session uh, on the 14th. Then we're going to have one more 7 p.m. session and one more 9 p.m. session. I think that's probably how we're going to round out the rest of the seminar series. So hopefully you'll be able to make it to at least one more. I can only hope. And if you have questions, if you have thoughts, of course, you can get in touch with me. You can get in touch with me on Twitter. You can find me at Paper Bullets. You can follow at StoryWonk for, for updates, for programming notes, for all of that good stuff. You can email me directly, podcast at storywonk.com, or you can come join the conversation over on the StoryWonk forum, forum.storywonk.com. I have to say, I am surprised that I have kept you this late tonight. Oh my God, Evelyn tells me that it is 4.44 a.m. in Germany. It is 4.44 right now. Evelyn, that is dedication of the highest order. I commend you. <laughs> you guys are are terrific. Thank you all so much. Thank you all so much for your for your thoughts and for your comments. You're just amazing. You guys make this so much fun every Friday night. I can't wait to talk to you. Two weeks tonight, October the 14th, I can't wait to get into, into the Forbidden Forest and then back to Hogwarts. We really are accelerating toward the end of the book and there's a lot to discuss. I hope you're looking forward to it as much as I am. I will talk to you all very soon. Until then, take care. Bye.